am Kirsten Hyde, and I get the privilege of working here on staff. Um, so a little fact for those of you who don't know me well, um, I'm actually not that into movies. Um, growing up, we had three movies that we owned, Apollo 13, uh, Peter Pan, the Mary Martin edition, and Field of Dreams. So uh, movies kind of are weird to me. Um, but my husband loves, loves movies and loves going to movies. So if anybody ever needs somebody to go with, hit him up. Um, but Jonathan loves movies so much that we will like be on a vacation or we will be like adventuring in a new city and I'm like, hey, what should we do? He's like, you wanna go to a movie? Which always is crazy to me because I'm like, no, like we could just go see one in Chattanooga. Um, but when we were dating, I was trying to woo him. And so whenever we would, we were long distance, and so when we'd be together, one of the suggestions was always, you want to go to a movie? So our first Thanksgiving together, we were in Boston, and sure enough, he's like, what do you want to do? Or I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, let's go to a movie. So I said yes, trying to impress him, and we went to a movie in the Boston Commons, um, and the movie was terrible. At least I thought it was terrible. Jonathan actually loved it. Um, then a couple weeks later, I go visit him out in Maryland, and we drive an hour to a movie theater to watch another movie that I thought was terrible. I actually remember like trying to force myself to fall asleep because I like really didn't like it. Um, Jonathan, of course, loved the movie. So after like kind of a span of this happening, I began to feel comfortable telling him, how about you just go to the movie by yourself or with a friend? Um, however, recently, like a couple months ago, I was trying to be like a nice little wife and he wanted to go to the movies. So we like looked up the trailer for Manchester by the Sea and I was like, this looks nice. So we go to the movie. Jonathan loved it, and guess who didn't really like it that much? Um, kind of the theme with all of the movies that we went to that I hated and he loved were movies that ended right in the middle of something happening. Because for me, I want a movie that has closure. Good closure, whether it is a bad or sad, a happy ending, I don't care as long as you close it out, I'm content. So it's this idea tonight of closure that I want us to look at the scripture we just read. The scripture about Jesus Christ's crucifixion. The crux of our faith what is part of making us Christians, the story of Jesus' ministry, his work on earth being completed, his work that he did not just begin three years prior, but for centuries and centuries came to a head in this story of the crucifixion that we will look at tonight. So pray with me. Father God, um, I pray that through my words we may experience 
and know you to be true and good and just and gracious. May your Holy Spirit do that work. Thank you that you came to earth and died for us. We pray this in your name, amen. Okay, so for those of you that have grown up, especially here in the South, um, for those of you that grew up as Christians, you've heard the story of the crucifixion, I'm sure, a lot. We see crosses all over, and I don't think that it often like weighs on us the way I believe it probably should. We hear often about Jesus like being like betrayed by his best friends, being mocked and ridiculed and shamed by the people he loved, being paraded around naked around this town just to be put up on a cross and die one of the most horrific, humiliating deaths we could ever imagine. Yet this story very rarely moves us to tears, let alone like stirs up our emotions. But this story is one that changes history, that changes our lives. It is the place where we see the justice of God and the graciousness of God come together as he pours out his justice on Jesus so he may pour out his grace on us. Yet it doesn't seem to stick. And this may be because we've heard it so many times. It may feel far away. Maybe we don't believe it. But I really wonder if for most of us, it's because we don't experience the cross. We don't believe it so much that we trust it. We may believe it to be true, but we don't trust it to be true. We need to move from being like a child who believes that Santa Claus exists to being like a rock climber who trusts that his harness is not going to let him drop or a skydiver that trusts that its parachute is not going to let him crash that instead of just believing the cross, that we would trust it and experience it to be true. The story of the Old Testament is a story of God reconciling his people to himself. The overarching narrative of Genesis to Malachi is God bringing his people back to him. We see our forefathers wandering in the desert, leaving their homes, defeating enemies, being defeated by enemies, all longing for a promise that God offered to them. But we read actually in Hebrews, all of these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received what God had promised. And that is because what God had promised was in Christ. And part of what he promised in Christ was in the crucifixion. 
the crucifixion of Jesus was the ram that saved Isaac. The crucifixion of Jesus was a picture, the real picture of a lot of the symbols and the laws that were given to the Israelites. The crucifixion of Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy found in Isaiah. We even read tonight, Allison read for us in John's account of the crucifixion, he kept saying this happened so that the prophecy may be filled and this happened so that the prophecy may be fulfilled. We see the crucifixion of Jesus being something that was being, was fulfilling prophecies and promises that were in the past. And then Jesus, on the cross, takes his final breath and cries out, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am finished. It is finished, he proclaims. This atoning, sacrificial work that has reconciled all of us to himself has been finished. Our sins have been paid for on the cross. That is finished. And it was finished for these people in the past, these Old Testament people that were longing for this promise of God. Their sins were wiped clean. They were reconciled. It was for the past and for the present and for the future. Because it is also our sins on the cross that were forgiven, our debts that were paid, our shame that is dead because it is finished. Your sins are forgiven, your debt is paid, your shame is dead because it is finished. And this word, it is finished, actually in Greek is only one word, and it's tetelestai. Y'all wanna say that with me? Tetelestai. Good job. Um, the word was used pretty often in different scenarios in this culture. It was used for a messenger as he would go and deliver a notice to a king, to someone. And once he delivered this message, he would declare to Tilistai, his job was completed. It was used by priests as they would look over their sacri the sacrifices that were brought. When they found that the sacrifice was pure and ready to be offered up, they would exclaim to Tilistai, it's finished. It was used in real estate, declaring that a transaction has been completed. In fact, there's a lot of papyrus documents that were found in Egypt and stamped across these documents was the word to Telestai. Many of those, yes, were the real estate ones, but there was a ton of these documents that were actually business documents. And to Telestai was stamped on it because whatever was owed was paid in full. Tetelestai was used to declare that someone's debt had been paid in full. 
So as Jesus on the cross with his very last breath before he gave up his spirit says to Telestai, he's saying that his job that he came, his task he came to do has been completed. That he as a sacrificial lamb is pure and ready to be offered up. That this transaction of victory has been done and that our debts have been paid in full because of him. And Jesus wants us to experience this, this reality of tetelestai. It is finished. But I'll argue that a lot of us don't experience this because we don't recognize what is being offered to us, and we have trouble hoping for it here in this life. I know a lot of you guys know about debt. Um, Student loans is debt. Um, Seniors, you probably are freaking out right now because you're about to have to start paying them. Freshmen, you probably are just watching that number rise and rise and rise. I know last week, if you guys are doing summer classes, you got the FAFSA forms back, and some of you are not very happy with the amount of money you're not getting. Um, you may already be in credit card debt, car loans. You guys know what debt is. But can you imagine your final day of senior year, you walk out of your classroom and somebody hands you a check for the entirety of what you owe? student loans, credit card, car. How would you react? Probably be pretty overwhelmed and then pretty overwhelmed with gratitude. And then you'd have this moment, oh my word, my life is about to change. And as if, if this is how we would react with money How much more should we react like this when we recognize that God has paid our debt and our sins no longer own us or win or have victory over us? That we are overwhelmed and overwhelmed with gratitude and that we recognize that our life is about to change. Or maybe for some of you, when I talk about debt, it's like, that doesn't actually really hit home. Maybe with your loans and your debt, you actually just ignore it. So it's not this impactful thing because you actually have no idea how much you owe, so it doesn't really feel like this big deal that somebody would pay it off. Or maybe you're just so used to this reality of living paycheck to paycheck, living in debt, that an idea of anything else seems really impossible. And that actually makes sense. Jason posted the other day on Twitter that the United States has so much debt that each United States citizen is liable for almost a million dollars to get us out of debt. So of course it seems impossible to think of a world without that. But I bet that if we are ignoring our financial debt, 
we might be doing that with our sin as well. We hide it, we ignore it. So then we can't be grateful for what we've been forgiven of because we don't even know what we're doing. Or maybe you just can't picture a reality without your sin being so overwhelming, without your shame just covering you. You have no idea what the picture of life looks like without that. But life experienced in Tetelestai is asking us to live different. When we live out of Tetelestai, we don't just say, well, just gonna ignore sin because sin's always gonna be there. Just gonna ignore injustice because injustice is always gonna be there. Just gonna ignore suffering because suffering's always gonna be there. Now when we live out of Tetelestai, it is finished. Then we begin to live as people who are free. And we know that yes, there is still sin and injustice and suffering that is happening in this world. But if our God says that it is finished, that these sins have been removed, then surely all of these other things, when he says that it is finished now, it will be finished that he promises us that when the new heavens and the earth come, that all this pain and suffering will be gone, so it will be finished. So why will we not live in that right now? Why do we not live in a world where we know that it is finished and it will be finished? In life, if we live in it as Tisthelestai, if we believe that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, that his atoning work has reconciled us back to him. That he loves us so deeply that he would do this sacrifice for us. We're gonna live as people that live out of freedom and innocence. And we'll experience a freedom of actually feeling really safe because we know that our God has forgiven us and so we are free to forgive others because we know he's forgiven us. And we are safe because we know he loves us. And so we are free to love others without expecting anything in return because we have unrequited love from Jesus. And we feel safe because we know our God trusts us and so we are free to offer trust to other people even if they don't deserve it or earn it. Because God trusts us. And we are people that live in victory, not as victims thinking the world is against us and hates us. Because our God is victorious over sin. And so we can stand with him as we live out of Tetelestai. We are people that love that forgive and that trust freely. And as we live in this Tetelestai, we see that God is asking for us to participate, that he has work for us to do. See, we live in a time of an already but not yet, where there is still sin and evil crawling around this world. 
where not everyone knows and experiences and trusts who Jesus is, maybe even including ourselves. So in this time, he says, I want you to live in Tetelestai. It is finished. And I need, I want you to participate in this. So we're going to look at actually Jesus and his interaction with his mom and talk a little bit more. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So a couple things that strike me about just this brief interaction. First, Jesus is on the cross, suffering, dying in so much pain, yet there he thinks about his mom. His compassion was greater than his suffering. Then I also think about Mary, standing probably like seven, eight feet under this cross, unable to touch her son, help him, standing there watching him die, just imagining what that must have felt like. I imagine she probably thought back to a prophecy that was given to her by Simeon as she was holding Jesus, infant baby, in her arms. Simeon, out of Luke 2, says the child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. I imagine her there as Jesus is being pierced, that her own soul was being pierced as well. Through Jesus' pain, through Mary's pain, we actually see a really beautiful picture of what it looks like to honor your mother and your father. Even on the cross, Jesus himself was being obedient to these commandments. And in this story, we kind of have to presuppose a few things. Um, first, that Joseph, Jesus' dad, passed away. We also have to presuppose that Jesus was probably Mary's main caretaker, so probably lived with her until he started his ministry at 30. And then probably that his brothers didn't believe in him. So Jesus on the cross looks to take care of his mother. But in this story, it looks like he's also taking care of John, the disciple that Jesus loved. John at this time was probably a teenager, so giving him the responsibility of taking care of his mother probably like kind of kept him in line a little bit. Giving him this responsibility take care of my mom like I would. 
John probably stepped up to that challenge said, okay, I will take care of her. And I'm sure Mary took care of him as Jesus left. He cared for both of them in this moment. Jesus on the cross is the substitute for our sin. And the substitute wanted a substitute to take care of his mother on earth. And the substitute wanted John to take care of his mother. John had just recently left Jesus in the garden, turned from him, but John came back to the cross and Jesus said, I want you to take care of her. At the end of Jesus' life, he gave John a great responsibility that John then stepped into. The substitute wants us to be a substitute for him on earth. The ones whose hands and feet were pierced wants us to be his hands and feet here on earth. He wants us to take care of his mother, to take care of his people until he returns to proclaim the good news that the cross brings as a substitute for him, doing it like him. Like I said earlier, we live in this time of already but not yet, where the work of Christ is being done by the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's wanting you to be a part of that, to be a substitute for the substitute. And even if you have turned from him, denied him, just like John, if you come back to the cross, he wants you to be one of these substitutes. And when we are given responsibility, something in us stirs up and we have more and more life and we respond in greatness. When we have responsibility, it gives us purpose, it gives us goals, it gives us a way to move forward. And I know you guys are all asking, what is my purpose? What a better purpose than taking care of Jesus' mother, his people, and proclaiming his good news. Um, a lot of you guys that know me know that I do ballet, and one of the most difficult roles to be cast as is an understudy. Because as an understudy, you have to do all the work, you have to go to all the rehearsals, but you don't get the fame and the glory and you don't get to perform the part. And so often as an understudy, you will just not quite learn the part all the way, don't, you don't do all the work. But then, when somebody gets injured, when somebody gets sick, you have to go on stage. And if you haven't stepped up to that responsibility, you're screwed. One of the most 
famous understudy moments is from this girl, Jennifer Galfan, who danced at Boston Ballet. And she was 17 years old and had just joined the company. And she was understudying the lead part of Don Quixote. And so this one show, it's opening night, it's like the prima ballerina that everyone's there to see is performing and Jennifer's in the audience. Well, during act one, her name was Sarah, the prima ballerina, gets injured. So 17-year-old Jennifer runs backstage, finds a tutu, puts it on, warms up as fast as she can, and is ready to go on stage. And because she had stepped up to her responsibility, she went on stage fearless and was wonderful. She had never performed the part, never danced with this partner, but she knew it. Her partner later said that she left her signature on that stage, that she was stupendous. She was given a responsibility and responded to it with greatness. As the Easter season is coming up very soon, I want you guys to take this responsibility that you've been offered seriously. Say yes to being a substitute to the substitute. Say yes to being the hands and feet of the one that was pierced. Say yes to telling of the good news of the cross that people's sins have been forgiven. Say yes to sharing with other people that what was begun in them will be carried out to completion. Recognize that you too are this finished work, that what God has begun in you, he will carry it out to completion. Say yes to experiencing to die. his finished work within you, that your debts are paid, your sins are forgiven, your shame is dead. Say yes to physically and spiritually caring for the people of this world. On the cross, Jesus' atoning work reconciled us back to him. Our sins were gone. We see in the prophecies that this had to happen. We experience from his love that this was the only way that it could happen. We know that our debt has been paid. We have been stamped, paid in full. That we have been invited to be people that participate in this finished work. And so when a meal has been eaten, finished, devoured, People at that point don't say, Tatilistai. But it is when the meal has been made and is ready for people to come and enjoy, to be invited into, that is when you declare Tatilistai. Jesus is saying it is finished because he wants to invite you in. So go boldly and be people that live out Tatilistai. 
before I pray, I want you guys to know that there are people in the back always in the last worship set to pray with you. So pray with me. Father God, um, may we know you to be true, to be real, to be loving. Thank you that you have finished the sacrificial work for us. And thank you that you've invited us to continue your work with your spirit here and now. I pray that your spirit works the next evening for all of these students. Praise in your name, amen.